You're listening to Shrink the Virus, a weekly podcast that explores the psychology of everyday life during the pandemic, hosted by two psychiatrists, Steve Allen and Rob Seltzer. Shrink the Virus is brought to you by Melbourne independent community media organisation, Triple R. Check out the Shrink the Virus podcast page on the Triple R website and on Facebook. And don't forget, you can financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber at any time. More details at rrr.org.au. Hi, and welcome to Shrink the Virus with me, Rob Seltzer, and myself, Steve Allen. Stefano, what is happening on the show today? Well, we have a very special guest that we're super excited about. Mm-hmm. Professor Karen Leader is an infectious diseases physician, head of infectious diseases epidemiology unit at the School of Public Health and Preventative Medicine at Monash University, and the head of travel medicine and immigrant health services at the Victorian Infectious Diseases Service at Royal Melbourne Hospital. It's fair to say that you don't really yep. get... <laughs> much more senior than no. this when it comes to being an infectious diseases physician and an epidemiologist and slap bang in the middle of you know our policy and our approaches to treating and preparing the community for um, COVID since the whole thing began back in January. Just yeah. she's an amazing person. She's an amazing and person. And we're just excited w- to have it. We've just uh, finished doing the interview with her and it is a terrific interview. Um, we're always learning things. And... Um, in the production meeting before the show, uh, Stephen and I were saying, okay, her name is Karen Leader, not Karen Leader. Karen, Karen. And the whole time through the interview, I'm thinking, Karen, Karen, Karen. And a couple of times I called her Karen by mistake, so apologies. I sort of noticed Karen. that. But we both know her. Like I was, I know. I mean, as comes out in the interview, uh, um, I worked with Karen back at um, Fairfield, Fairfield Hospital back yeah. in the day. And she's also very good mates with a uh, friend of the show, uh, Prof Mike Starr, who's actually been on the show as well. So I, I'm forever hearing him telling me about what's been happening in the infectious diseases world. And Karen's name always comes up. So, yeah, it's very exciting to have Karen on the show. Very happy about that. So um, what's happening out there in the big wide world, Stefano? Well, let me um, press my phone to tell you the date. It's Saturday the 6th of June as we record, so it's quite a um, it's quite a challenging day for yeah. um, Australia in a lot of ways because, of course, we've got the um, protests around Australia for the Black Lives Matter campaign mm. coming mm. on today, and so it's raised a whole lot of issues. Yeah. I, I read in the paper this morning um, the Supreme Court in New South Wales has banned, has stopped the march in some way, shape or form, or said it's really? not legal, yep. And uh, But Victoria, the government, has asked people not to go, mm. but as far as I'm aware, at least at you know 10am in the morning, hasn't banned it. And of course, it's really, it's one of those issues of challenging, of competing risks. Mm, You know, mm. uh, on the one hand, only one in 50,000 people has the virus. So, you know, if 50,000 people turn up and, you know, the chances of someone having coronavirus there, given that anyone with half a brain who's coughing won't turn up. So the only people who could would be people who are either asymptomatic or early Mm. in the illness. You know, the chances are very slim. And the Black Lives Matter campaign is so important. Mm -hmm. Yet, you know, obviously the government's concerned from a public health perspective. It's a tricky one. Yeah. And then how do you manage those risks as a government? Wouldn't want to be in uh, the shoes of uh, uh, any political leaders today because it's hard. How do you balance those risks? As you say, it's 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 uh, dreadfully difficult. I thought, you know what I'd do if I was the government? Just on that topic really quickly. The first yeah. thing I'd do if I was telling people that I don't want them to march, I'd give them an alternative. Exactly. Say, exactly. Let's yeah. set up, exactly. let's meet with your top 100 leaders yeah, exactly. and let's have some sort of summit in the next four yeah. weeks. Let's begin the process of untangling systematic 
institutionalized racism yeah. in Australia and figure out what we can do to other countries that have the same pro- that other countries to support other countries in the process because we do have you know it is a very clear issue so I guess if I was trying to stop people marching I'd say I'll we get that yeah. it's important yeah. let's consider the march a given that it's important let's go the next step and start finding solutions yeah. that that would be my approach well so you should be in government vote one Steve I'm too lazy to go into government <laughs> I've got guitars to play, drums to bang, bikes to ride, beaches to sit on. Good looking enough. You look like a sort of an Australian Justin Trudeau. (laughs) Good looking. (laughs) I've been called many things in my life. Good looking is not one of them. Ah, The camera loves you. Anyway, on with the show. Hey, Karen, thanks for joining us. That's my pleasure for having me. Yeah. It's great to see you. Oh, sorry, I was just going to say, we worked together back in the day at Fairfield Hospital. You know, they, they were amazing and heady times. For people who don't know, Fairfield Hospital was the sort of state infectious disease hospital, and it was where all the sort of HIV stuff began, oh, God, you know, back in the whatever, you know, late 80s, 80s mid yeah. to late 80s. And um, it was an incredible time in Australian history, wasn't it? It really was incredible, and it's it's amazing to think what happened because uh, people, uh, well, Fairfield Hospital closed in the uh, mid-90s, I think with many people thinking that Australia wasn't going to need to put so much resources into infectious diseases, but, you know, how 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 wrong were we? <laughs> They've never gone not- away, but, you know, I think everyone recognises something uh, uh, incredible that's gone on this year. See, that's called hubris. We thought we knew better. But I, I also worked at uh, Fairfield as a resident for three months, and so I had to sleep there uh, overnight. And I just remember this beautiful old, uh, I think it was a nurse's home. It was fantastic. And these fe- the peacocks, they had peacocks. peacocks walking around. Yeah. Exactly. It was idyllic in the river and fantastic place. Well, I'll, I'll tell you that... Sorry, I'll just say that working at a place like that is actually what got me interested in infectious diseases. I think when you are starting out as a career as a doctor and unless you've got, unless you're really driven into one path, it's the experiences that you have along the way that determine where you end up. And I really loved the time I had um, at Fairfield, which uh, to describe it briefly, it wasn't like working at a busy, no. you know, inner suburban metro hospital. It, it had a very different pace and it was a very different experience. And it's uh, probably underpins how I got to being an infectious disease uh, physician. I also think, though, that... Um you know, as part of Australia's incredible response to COVID has been because we have one of the strongest infectious diseases communities in the world. And part of that was all of the organisation that built up around HIV, because HIV attracted really a lot of the great minds from Australian healthcare into um, into in- infectious diseases. And we had things like these, you know, national organisations that organised all of the HIV care and brought all of these groups together. And they've never disappeared. And I I sort of think that part of the reason our response has been so great and our government's had access to such great experts is because of the um, infrastructure in infectious diseases and epidemiological health in Australia that flowed from HIV. Look, I think there's a lot to that, um, and and I think also our success has been that um, people have listened to the or the government has listened to the experts in this in this country, and that isn't what's happened in some other countries, as, as I think we're all aware. So there is expertise elsewhere, um, but there's also uh, there has been an excellent um, uh, voice that has been listened to. Mm. Karen, tell us about the work you do in general. 
So I am an infectious disease physician and working at the Royal Melbourne Hospital um, where I uh, see patients. So I'm particularly, my, my area of expertise um, is specifically in infections that are acquired overseas. And so I see uh, return travellers who've acquired infections that have crossed international borders and brought them back into Australia, whether it be travellers or immigrants. Um, I also do advise uh, people who are going to travel overseas about what vaccines they need and what precautions they need to take. And again, I think many people might not have thought about the risks of travelling overseas uh, all that much up until this COVID pandemic. And it'll be interesting to see how people perceive risks related to travel uh, following this when, when one day we can travel overseas again. And the other area of my work is as an infectious disease epidemiologist at Monash at the School of Public Health um, at Monash University. And epidemiology we aware that no one heard of or no one understood, probably not even my husband, um, uh, until uh, this epidemic. And really it is about uh, who gets disease, what the risk factors are, um, understanding in infectious disease epidemiology, it's really about understanding the characteristics of the infectious agents, how it spreads, whether it spreads before you get symptoms, whether it spreads after you have symptoms, um, how long it takes to uh, to uh, develop symptoms from the time you've been exposed. All these, you know, specific characteristics and and risk factors: who's most likely to get disease, who's most likely to get severe disease. That's really what epidemiology is, and the the purpose of it that by understanding these uh, characteristics, you can start thinking about the best way to prevent disease. Um, uh, if you know who's going to get it, who's most likely at risk, um, how it spreads, you can start to formulate prevention plans. Don't you just love it how probably six months ago, maybe one in 50 people knew what an epidemiologist is, and now everyone knows. They've become kind of the uh, rock stars of the pandemic. Well, I actually think, you know, I feel like I've got dumber as the, as the, um, <laughs> as the diseases, uh, the, the epidemic's gone on, because now everyone seems to know all the things that I've been talking about for years. What an unknown is, you know, incubation period, infective period. This is what I've been teaching for longer than I care to admit, but now it's on every, you know, every news reporter knows about yeah. You know, on that topic then, um, it strikes me no one in the world other than you guys are in the driver's seat to watch this unfold. And I wonder what it was like from the early days of you must have got those reports coming out of Wuhan and through to at some stage thinking, oh, yeah, yet another thing that's threatening to be a pandemic that probably won't. That sort of, you know, is this a storm in a teacup through to, oh, my God, what, what, what was it like? It's interesting to think back because the first case was diagnosed in Australia on the 25th of January in a, a return traveller from Wuhan. And I know, um, uh, I know that that's when discussions started happening at the uh, policy and, and prevention level, um, but it probably didn't hit mainstream, even mainstream infectious diseases for, for another couple of weeks. Um, by mid by early to mid-February, um, it was definitely very much on my and I think other people's radar, but it still seemed like it might have evolved the way SARS did, that it was going to be somewhat local. Um, I work with an international network of people um, uh, with site, 70 sites around the world in the US, Europe, Asia, etc. And I, I remember having a conversation with one of 
my colleagues from Hong Kong and and receiving emails from another colleague um, from Singapore who'd gone through the SARS epidemic and and they in early February were already very concerned. Whereas I think some of us bit further away geographically from China um, weren't sure that it was necessarily going to become anything global. But I, I would say by, you know, mid-February, uh, everyone was listening. And if you remember, you know, things really peaked around the first week of March and then the restrictions started in mid-March. Um, so there was a period of time. I have to say that I was progressively anxious that we perhaps were sitting on something um, that wasn't quite being recognised. But obviously, in retrospect, we've done very well here with our preventive efforts in Australia. I just want to just quickly ask you about that, like getting a bit anxious, like was it a that sort of, you know, impending sensation of doom or was it more, and I suppose you must have also wondered a little bit about, oh, I don't want to shout from the treetops, I don't want to be the boy who cried wolf sort of thing. What was it, was it a weird sort of feeling, at, you know, wondering what, what was happening? It was, and um, again, I have the, ins- as perhaps a slightly different insight because I do have colleagues, uh, for example, initially, who uh, in Spain, who were already seeing patients. And, you know, I, I remember getting an email from one of my Spanish colleagues who runs an infectious, um, uh, uh, actually my Italian colleague, I should say, who runs an infectious disease unit in the north of Italy. And his deputy, um, who was his, one of his best friends, ended up in intensive care, as did another six people from his unit, you know, earlier on in this epidemic. It might have been March by this point, but... Um, when you hear first-hand, first-hand voices uh, about how scary it is and how should we tr- start a trial drug, what should we do you know, to save my friend and colleague, it puts a very different perspective on that feeling of anxiety, um, which was still early on. We still didn't know what was going to happen in Australia, but you do start feeling a sense of impending um impending fear and potential impending doom when you're hearing that you know, people have been trained to save lives are just watching people die. And, of course, it became mainstream media relatively quickly, but I think having a little an insight even a week early, earlier than others in this pandemic seemed like a long time. Um, yeah. Karen, why do you think it is that Australia is so good at infectious diseases? What is it? Uh, I'm not sure if you're talking about this specific about about um, COVID specifically mm. or in general. Um, look, I think in general um, the principles of infectious diseases are that some things are spread person to person, some things are spread from the environment to people, some things are spread from animals to people, some things, some things are spread in lots of different ways. Um, but we live generally in Australia in a clean environment um, with good resources, good vaccination, um, you know, good hygiene. And so in general, we just don't have the burden of many of the infections, like you know, particularly gastrointestinal infections, as you have in more contaminated environments, which is, um, you know, what travellers face when they go overseas and they get travellers to diarrhoea and they're in a more contaminated environment. For COVID specifically, I think there was good design and there was also some good luck. Um, you know, we, nar- I think we narrowly dodged a much more severe outbreak and, it, you know, as I said before, a week in this epidemic is a long time, or back particularly early on was a long time. And if we had closed things down a little bit later, 
Mm. We might have been a lot worse off. And to be honest, if we close things down a week earlier, we may not have seen the peak at you know almost 400 a day that we did see in the second half of March. Do you think there are specific or even general government policies or structures or hierarchies that we have that other countries perhaps don't have that make us or put us in a better position? Um, look, I, I think this... I think we are. It, it, um, yeah, we are a fortunate and uh, and also a relatively small country, mm. and generally have a unified voice. Although we do have a kind of strange structure in that um, some elements are coordinated by the Commonwealth, and some I think things are done at state level. There are reasons for that. It also mm. um, potentially. Uh, complicates uh, policy and decision making, and we've seen that, for example, in the disparate ways that um, school openings have, have mm-hmm. started across the country. Um, you, if you compare that to something like the US, where they have a you know a centralised CDC, of course they also have um, you know state based uh, public health units, but they're very much um, coordinated uh, centrally. Um, uh, there are pros and cons, and many people in Australia think that we should have a CDC-like um, centre in Australia. Um, I think the bottom line is there has been good communication and good, um, uh, uh, a, a generally good response across the country, and it, um, uh, it may have worked no matter which structure we had um, because people have been unified and the government has listened I'm going to be selfish and, and jump in. I know Steve's champing at the bit to ask a question, but just very briefly, you mentioned the CDC. I've heard precious little from the CDC recently. I mean, is, is, is that due to something in particular or just the way it unfolds? Um, I'm not sure that I shouldn't be saying this on air, but my understanding is that the CDC has been quite heavily silenced by right. uh, by, by Trump, um, and they are making policies. In fact, I was speaking to one of my CDC colleagues yesterday morning who's been working, for example, on the travel policies for the right. CDC. If you if you go to the CDC website, you do see that they've been doing a lot around the se- um, behind the scenes. But, um, yeah, I think that's a very u- unique um, uh, confluence of, of uh, events um, navigated by Trump. Yeah, the... Um the question I wanted to move a little bit on to the medical aspects. Um, in particular, I was wondering about the coronavirus itself. What, what makes this different? Why is it, um, you know, are there any features that are unique to coronaviruses that we should be aware of that, you know, make it more prone to these pandemics than other things? I think one of the things is that we know uh, animals can, uh, or certain animals can carry coronaviruses. So there is a... Uh, um, and the emergence from animals relates to how we've, uh, particularly in places like China where they have wet markets, where you have animals and humans um, uh, uh, interacting in ways that allow viruses to jump species. I mean, we there are many viruses that, that do infect animals and birds and, um, you know, influenza is another one of them. I think specifically with coronavirus or with this coronavirus, um, the... I don't know that I or anyone understands exactly why this one has taken off when other ones perhaps haven't. Um, it's, a, it's a range of factors and it really does come down to what I was saying before about understanding about, about you know, the specifics of each virus. There is something great. If you're the virus 
the best thing you can do to ensure that you can reach as many people as possible and get through a population is to firstly be able to spread before people are sick so yeah. that people don't know that they're carrying it and that you can spread it. Secondly, be able to spread in more than one way. And we know that coronaviruses can spread, mainly spread through droplets, but also, you know, through surfaces. Thirdly, even when you do make people sick, make you, that you don't make people or the majority of people too sick because then they can still walk around and, and transmit even once they get sick. And then fourthly, if you can make some people really sick, uh, which we know happens in a small proportion of people who get COVID-19, um, you can also uh, um, incite a whole lot of fear. Um, so, you know, and then fifthly, if you've got no immunity and there's no cross-protection from other viruses or other infections, then the whole population is susceptible. So, you know, it's, it's really a confluence of factors and I don't think any of us know how many other coronaviruses may have emerged or could have emerged or, you know, may have trickled through a community and then burnt out. But it's all these factors of this specific virus that have led to a pandemic. And obviously the fact that it's um, particularly severe and vulnerable people, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, creates a whole lot of other issues when you're starting to think about how would we prevent it if we didn't have a vaccine, who would get it, etc. Yeah. Karen, where do you think we're up to in, in the hunt for a vaccine? Are we any closer than we were a couple of months ago? And, and where do you see the research heading? Um, look, I'm not a vaccine expert per se, but uh, I mean, I know that at least on paper, there's more than 100 vaccines uh, wow. that are being thought of. Um, and there's more than, there's about 10 that are in preclinical uh, phase testing. Um, when you're thinking about, about a vaccine, there's a couple of issues. Firstly, there's different ways of getting the immune system to, to react, to create antibodies and other things to be able to, uh, uh, to, to, to um, serve as a barrier um, to future infection and to incite the immune system the way you need to. Um, and, and the vaccines that are being considered um, work in a whole lot of different ways. In fact, some of the vaccines that are being trialled uh, going, uh, uh, aiming to get the, the immune system to work in ways that we haven't had, we don't have a precedent for uh, vaccines that work in that particular way. There's been work going on in the background, but we don't have any vaccines on the market that work in that way. And that, of course, is exciting in some ways, but also potentially means that we'll come across barriers that, uh, are, that, that, that we don't yet anticipate and that's why there's so many vaccines being trialed there are some uh, that work in ways we're used to and some that work in ways that we think might work better but we don't we haven't yet tested but the interesting thing is that we don't um, know whether being infected with, uh, with SARS-CoV-2 um, the virus that causes COVID-19 leads to long-term immunity mm. now if infection itself doesn't lead to long-term immunity, then even thinking about how in a magical way a vaccine could do better than the infection itself in leading to long-term mm. immunity mm. makes you create questions. We also don't know that if you do get an, if you do get immunity, how long it will last, whether it's 100% protective or whether it might just lead to a milder illness. Um, we don't know whether the virus will change along the way and therefore if we create... Uh, 
um, an immune response to the current version of the virus, will that be sustained? Yeah. Yeah. Um, we don't know. Also, and this is you know the slightly scary thing, one of the things about this infection is that it's not just the virus itself that makes people sick. It's it's an enhanced immune response. Some people seem to get an overwhelming kind of shake-up of their immune system when they're exposed to the virus, and it's that immune cascade or this kind of your defence mechanisms going to overdrive, and that itself can lead to harm, and that itself leads to some of the severity. So one of the things that people worry about is that if you have a vaccine that isn't 100% effective uh, and then you're exposed to the virus, might that actually lead to an enhancement of the immune response which can lead to more harm? We have seen this with dengue fever, for example. Yeah, and yeah. so there's all these issues to be considered. And I think then the final thing to consider is how do you test a vaccine in real life? You need, yeah. the, you need the virus to still be circulating so that people are exposed. And we want the vaccine, we, sorry, we want the virus uh, not, not to be overwhelming um, healthcare systems, but if, we, if, it takes to, um, if it takes a while to get a, a vaccine, it may be actually hard to test it on the ground. Do, do, you, know, do you know what I love? It's, it's people who are experts in a, in, a, in a field like you who say, look, I'm an expert in this part of the field, but not that part of the field, like I'm not an expert. Whereas you get people who are less knowledgeable, who bloviate the whole time and have a lot of opinions. But it's really people who know, who say, no, look, I don't really know. However, this is what I think. Yeah. So it's a wonderful thing about uh, interviewing experts. So, you know, given that the vaccine, clearly there's a number of factors to go. And, you know, realistically, it could easily be three years. I've heard people like Professor Peter Doty said he thinks as soon as September, yeah, October, yeah. that realistically it could be up to three years. Are we making advances in the actual treatments for COVID? So in the last, whatever, four or five months, have we figured out better ways to actually treat the people who get sick? Uh, the answer, the short answer is we don't exactly know because there are still clinical trials going on. But in the last uh, couple of weeks, the, the first evidence that we may be able to um, attenuate or, or reduce the severity of disease in people with with moderately severe um, uh, infection uh, um, have emerged, and that's the drug remdesivir. Um, it's an intravenous drug that can be given to people in hospital. Really interesting times. In the last, you know, in the last tw uh, 24 hours, there's been retraction of a big study of um, uh, the use of hydroxychloroquine, which is really? the drug that, you know, Yes. So there was a big, there was a, a paper published in the Lancet um, about two weeks ago um, that suggested that hydroxychloroquine um, caused harm. Mm. In the, there, there was uh, side effects. There's been subsequent uh, investigation. It, this this included ninety six thousand people around the world, and there's been um, it was using a specific database that apparently was be was able to extract information on cases. Um, people looked into this data, including some of the really strong infectious disease advocates and physicians in Australia. And when they looked at the data, they, for example, saw that there'd been more cases apparently of use of this drug hydroxychloroquine um, amongst Australian patients um, uh, uh, for COVID-19 than we had had patients in hospital with COVID-19 at the time. So there was clearly something strange going on mm. with the data and this was seen elsewhere. And then, and so th there's been questions um, asked and, and uh, on the basis of this paper that came out 
two weeks ago today, I think it was, WHO, the World Health Organization, stopped their major clinical trial using this drug for treatment. Okay. Wow. And wow. now this paper's been retracted <laughs> and everything's wow. starting up again. So it's just a fascinating time because it shows the problems. We really need proper evidence. And for that, you need randomized controlled trials. You need well done studies. This particular trial I'm talking about was a, what we call an observational study. It wasn't a randomized controlled trial, even if it had been well done, um, it may have not or may or may not have um, given us the evidence we need, but the fact that it seemed to be causing harm, you know, made people nervous. So the, the answer to your question is that we are making strides, but everyone's impatience is actually causing improper science and improper science to be, um, to be published in the highest reputable journals. Um, because everyone is just trying to move this forward. And I think we all need to take a breath and we need to say we need to establish the evidence and we need to do it properly. Yeah. And in Australia, we have established a living evidence guideline um, uh, a group, the Cochrane Living Evidence Guideline. I'm actually um, part of that and, and looking at which carefully and systematically reviews the data on a continuous basis, you know, basically day by day to establish Australian-specific and, and Australian-appropriate guidelines for management. But we're only in the early stages of understanding what's needed. So it sounds like you're saying, you know, so I, what I'm doing now in my head is thinking over the, you know, where are we heading for the next year? You know, what's things going to look like? And I guess, and in my own head, I'm thinking, well, we've clearly got the hospitals organised. We've got all of our ICU capacity up. We've got all of our PPE for staff. The public now understands it. We've got social distancing in place. And I'm wondering what the next big step is. And it sounds like it's research is the next big step, or is there something I'm missing? What should we be focusing on in the next 12 months? Um, research is a big part of it. I think the public health response um, is, uh, you know, what, what goes on day to day is also really important. Um, as it happens, I've been seconded to uh, work at the Victorian Health Department over the last few weeks and I've been working on some of the outbreaks that, uh, with, with many others, um, but working on some of the outbreaks. And it's quite incredible when you compare where we're at in Australia and um, uh, uh, compared to um, things internationally. Right now, many states of Australia have had are not having any cases of disease. Um, you know, uh, Tasmania, ACT, and Northern Territory haven't had a case um, you know, for a few weeks. Uh, um, many of the cases that are occurring in some, in some of the other states are, are clearly coming in from overseas and people from overseas who are being put in quarantine and they're being diagnosed while in quarantine to try and stop the spread. Um, but then whenever a case is found, there's this whole public health response that's done around that to uh, find the contacts, uh, the potential contacts, to put those people in quarantine, um, to isolate any known cases for people who are contacts in quarantine. And really, and you know, these people in quarantine are called, you know, daily by our mm. public health service to say, how are you? Have you got sick? You know, are you in quarantine? Mm. And by putting out these embers of a bushfire, if you like, around each case, we are hoping at the community level that we can reduce restrictions by if you don't let the embers flare because you put a whole lot of control around each case, you can then have 
everyone else move around a bit more normally. At the beginning, we all had to be in lockdown because mm. we were establishing that response. It was impossible to do this level of, um, of, uh, of contact tracing without the infrastructure and when there was, you know, hundreds of cases a day. But now we're at a different phase mm. and we're ahead of the game in Australia. Most countries in the world, I mean, they, they would... They would be amazed to think that pretty much every case that's diagnosed is newsworthy. <laughs> yeah. That, you know, it's quite incredible. So I'm not sure that I've completely answered your question, but I think it's a whole lot of things. It's an infrastructure for public health response. It's an understanding by the community of the fact that we're not at the end of it and this is not, you know, this is something we are going to have to learn to live with. We'd like to have better ideas of how to treat it, how to manage it, how to prevent it um, before we let it, um, you know, before we uh, let it become what we call endemic or let it smoulder through the community. And to do that, we've got to use the, you know, these mechanisms, you know, these restrictions that we put in place. And yes, of course, you know, better treatments, better vaccines. It's, it's all part of a big story. I don't think vaccine it's alone is a holy grail. Yeah. It's all these things. Yeah. yeah, That's a very powerful analogy of the embers and the bushfires. And, and mm. I can kind of see that um, very much so. Karen, this is our last question. We ask every guest this question. So take a deep breath. It's not that hard, really, but <laughs> it's more of a personal question. What's one thing you're doing differently today uh, because of the pandemic compared to, say, six months ago? How are you doing something different? Um, I don't go into the hospital every day or in the health department every day, so I'm working from home a lot. Mm. So I'm wearing Ugg boots a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, now, Liz, look, there's lots of things. Um, uh, one thing and, in, sorry, one thing in particular, yeah. which, you, which you think is uh, a healthy behaviour or a good behaviour, which you hope to carry on. I think um, that our understanding of the importance of simple messages like washing your hands and hand hygiene hopefully will continue. It actually reminds me a bit of when we had a drought, you know, in the you know, yeah. 10 years ago and people had turned off the water as they were brushing their teeth, yeah. you know, and, and those some of those behaviours have persisted. They're really simple messages and they yeah. almost seem so simple that they're futile, but they're really important and I think they will have ongoing impact on other infections. Yeah. Hey, Karen, it's fantastic uh, that you've made time, you know, and, and you're so busy working at um, the hospital at Monash at the health department, and you're in the absolute middle of obviously the biggest crisis that we've well, certainly faced in our lifetime for, at a world level. Um, so thank you so much for joining the Shrink the Virus podcast today. Um, it's been fantastic hearing your thoughts. Thank you for having me. So I hope you, we both hope you enjoyed the show. That was, of course, Professor Karen Leader from the, uh, oh, good goodness, Monash, Royal Melbourne Hospital. Everywhere. Doherty, the health department, you name it, she's helping and working there. What, um, wasn't she fantastic, Stephen? Especially uh, her perspective on the, vir on, the, on the vaccine and all the different kind of facets that have to come together. It was really good. 
Isn't it just an amazing concept that you've been working as an infectious disease physician specialising in in infections that come from overseas into our country and travel and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, you're at the peak of your career. You know, she graduated, I don't know, you know, she's been in it for 20 odd years. She's at the peak of her career. And all of a sudden, the biggest thing that you can imagine in infectious disease happens. And she's one of the people sitting, one of the, you know, experts sitting in the driver's seat saying Mm. how to respond. What do we do as a Mm. community, as Mm. a government? as a health practitioner, as an as an individual, sitting in that... I, I just would have had so many sleepless nights if I was her. <laughs> she was fantastic. It was great having her on the show. Hey, we uh, should run through some of our thank yous and all that sort of stuff, uh, Roberto. We should, we should tell people, don't forget to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, family, neighbours. We've got a Facebook page, Shrink the Virus. We've got an email, shrinkthevirus at gmail.com. And speaking of which, Stefano... Oh, we got a beautiful email, which I'm about to answer today from someone called Scott, just telling us about uh, some of the shows and what he thought. And he enjoyed, um, you know, particularly he enjoyed Doug Hilton. I've got the in front of me and he's, you know, putting a lot of thought to COVID himself. We love hearing the feedback. I will reply, be replying to you, Scott. Thanks very much. Thanks, Scott. Don't forget to tune into Triple R and our radio show is called Radiotherapy at Sunday at 10 a.m. And we've got the thank yous from Triple R, of course, Beck, Mia, Grace, Elizabeth and Michael, who have uh, really helped us put this show together and made all of the uh, things that need to, all the things that need to fall into place for a podcast to actually hit things like Apple Podcasts and Google and all that sort of stuff work. So thank you so much. And so until uh, next Monday, we'll uh, leave you to enjoy your week. Cheers. Bye-bye. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.